Hello, friend. And we're live. Hello, friend. Welcome to this fabulous Mr. Robot podcast after a long break. Henry and I are back. Hi, Henry. Hey, Margaret. I'm really excited to be here today to talk with you a little bit more about Mr. Robot before season four starts. I guess we're calling this the Mr. Robot Zeitgeist Review. Exactly. I think one of the things that we both really like about the show is how it uses current events uh, to be part of the storyline. And it's always interesting to think about what they're going to choose to show. You and I have often spoken about how much Mr. Robot seems like it's set in, in the near-ish future, but it's unlike a lot of other stories of this type that we see because it's so close to our present time in terms of events that it feels like it's just a few months ahead. And I have to tell you, now that it's been a while since the end of season three, I, I feel that more than ever. Well, it's interesting because... I think chronologically, the show is portrayed maybe a few years behind uh, where we are, but the events shown in the show and kind of the fall that we're experiencing seem to be very contemporaneous. Yeah, so I guess what we're going to do is we're going to sort of talk a little bit about some of the things that happened in season three, and then also some of the things that we're finding out in current events in, in the world around us that really have some pretty strong parallels to what's happening in this story. And hopefully this won't be the only time Henry and I talk uh, more about Mr. Robot before the premiere of season four. It was kind of cool going back and reviewing what happened. For example, season three is when we were introduced to new characters like Irving. I mean, he's such a part of the show to me now. It's really hard to believe that he was only introduced in the first episode of this season. Yeah. And it's worth reflecting at how well season three tied season one and season two together. I was concerned uh, at the end of season two about the direction the show is going. And I think season three really did a good job of uh, setting the story up on an arc that is sustainable. Yeah. And so season three basically was the unraveling or the, or the marching forward of the dark army's plan to have stage two initiated after the initial breaking down of the infrastructure. The beginning of season three, just so that we're all on the same page, we were not only introduced to folks like Irving played by Bobby Cannavale, we also were introduced to the Red Wheelbarrow Barbecue, which became a really seminal focal point throughout that past season. And one thing that I do think is interesting, because we start season three after the hack on our the economy and the ecosystem was initiated and everything was wiped out in terms of our financial markets, we see right away at the beginning of season three that society begins to sort of disintegrate. And we, and we see a lot of references to folks out on the street, like a street preacher, warning about uh, one world corporations and one world governments. And we definitely have um, culture or society become much more aware about the fragility of our infrastructure and how susceptible our energy and our financial systems are to hacking. 
What do you think about that in terms of the current landscape? I think we're all becoming really aware of the threats that uh, cybersecurity and hackers can have on our day-to-day lives. Like I was just reading in the paper about Singapore uh, being one of the countries to engage in a cybersecurity pact with Russia, uh, and that recently they've been having various large-scale hacks. Like I think there was a hack of their one of the databases involved with their healthcare system that also revealed personal information about, uh, I think, the prime minister or one of the leaders. Uh, so this is increasingly going from theoretical to real world with real world impacts. And it's, uh, I think, very prescient for the show to explore this. Yeah, even more so that honestly, than even when I was watching it, and even then you and I were talking a lot of, about this. And and I do recall reading that story about the hacking of the medical records in Singapore. I, I It is really interesting to consider that I mean, it's one thing if, if you know, my medical records get hacked. I mean, that's terrible. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily a target. But to your point, if if you can um, sort of see, you know, who, uh, you know, which public figures or powerful figures you want to take down, I mean, knowing their health history, you know, are they allergic to peanuts, for example, I mean, is, is pretty important. Yeah, and at the end of the day, you're trying to seek ways to influence and knowing how they might feel uh, about certain on certain days or how they feel about certain things based on their medical records or psychological profiles or history that can be extremely valuable. And you know, I I don't know if you saw the uh, the news about the North Korean leader carrying his own toilet with him so that no one can analyze his poop. I mean, it sounds kind of silly, but I mean, he's obviously aware of some technology or ability uh, that I'm not aware of where he's taking this kind of precaution. When I first heard that story about how the the leader of North Korea traveled around with his own toilet, (laughs) it did seem laughable, but it makes complete sense that there's so much information you, you can extract from that that's totally gross. And so it's probably a really good security practice, even regular DNA analysis. There are methods and local law enforcement uses to track people that didn't even exist 10 years ago. Sweat DNA, you can get a DNA footprint of some sort from your sweat, from your skin flaking off. It's pretty amazing what to various degrees of certainty they can tell. Then there are all those online services like 23andMe, for example. A lot of folks have their DNA uploaded there. I discovered one of my best friends from high school, turns out to be a third cousin, totally unknown to us. But then you find out like who can access or hack into those, not necessarily 23andMe, but who can access that information and who's investing in those kinds of companies. I found out, I don't know if I should keep this in this podcast, but I found out DST Global was an early investor in 23andMe. Well, did you see the news about GlaxoSmithKline having a deal with 23andMe to use 23andMe's data for development of drugs? Um, and there was this article that was talking about how most people don't fully appreciate the impact of their consent for 23andMe to use their genetic data for certain health-related purposes. 
in essence, you're giving away their right to commercialize your genetic material and information. And if we're going to get ourselves twisted into knots about what we give away to Google when we post something on YouTube or Twitter, we post something on Twitter, it's pretty amazing that people are willing to give 23andMe that much information. I don't think we have even begun to understand the implications around all of that, because what's being implied is not only are you giving away your genetic material to be incorporated into a product, you're giving away your rights to that genetic material, as you're fully saying, all trademark and right and copyright. And what does that really mean down the line? I mean, it's also ironic that at least in the United States, a lot of drugs are inaccessible to so much of our population because they just simply can't afford it. So there's an irony there too as well. Yeah, there was that case, I think, of the African-American woman like Henrietta Lacks or something like this, where Mm -hmm. she, uh, her genetic or biological material was used in the development of some medical procedure. She never really got compensated for it, and it's this thing that has been used to make a lot of money. Who's to say that we don't have unique genetic material that, at the end of the day, might be valuable to some big corporation? There was another thing that was touched on in the beginning of season three of Mr. Robot. In fact, in the first episode, we're introduced um, to a hacker club. I think Elliot attends, right? And there was a capture the flag type tournament happening, which is, you know, who can hack into the system and it's sort of a race. We've been hearing a lot about hacking in the news. You sent me this story where the challenge was to break into our voting machines. Yeah, that's right. Uh, They were exploring the security vulnerabilities of these voting machines and finding uh, finding security vulnerabilities. It's an interesting thing to think about whether or not this is just theoretical or if other people have discovered these exploits well before these hackers have. Some of these machines are pretty old, and so people have had you know ten plus years to try to figure out how to break into these machines. And I also think on a practical level, I was just ranting about this the the other day, and uh, I'm definitely have been guilty of it myself. You know, we've been on the front lines of sort of engineering and creating products and platforms and building backend systems and all of that. And, you know, I've been a part of really small corporations and really large corporations. And that doesn't always correlate with, you know, larger corporation, better security practices and protocols. I mean, e-corporation and Mr. Robot seems like they they keep, they're pretty good with that uh, on some level, at least they think about it. But, you know, if you think about for example, the Sony hack, how probably relatively unchallenging it was to sort of get that data. And I myself have seen, um, you know, CTOs and IT type people really have to fight to get budget to and time to initiate security protocols. And oftentimes, security protocols means you get lower engagement numbers for whatever reason, because you have more barriers to entry. I just think it's interesting, like this hacker group, it took, what was it, less, less than 24 hours or less than a couple hours for the to successfully break into the voting systems. We're going to be hearing a lot more of these kinds of stories because just institutionally, not enough attention is put on cybersecurity. I think there's a couple of different things going on. Like I think one, there's been a high premium placed on getting connected in the past 10 plus years where people didn't really ask too many questions about security as long as it was a password in place and things seemed quote secure. It was better to be connected than not. And so there was a large rush to put 
too many things onto the network in my opinion, without thinking through the security issues or vulnerabilities. Uh, so I think that's one part of it. Uh, I would say that now, because of GDPR, companies are getting more security conscious. And I think because of the liability risks that are uh, there for companies, if there's a data breach, if PR liability, if nothing else, companies are more uh, interested in security. I've seen this uh, firsthand. And then they're asking their partners more hard questions on security and asking them to ensure that things are secure. GDPR really set a lot of standards for imposing privacy measures. Something else I thought that was really interesting that season three of Mr. Robot covered, besides Elliot talking a lot about the invisible hand and his whole theory and reference since season one of the so-called invisible hand controlling life's events, that would be fun to return to. But sort of related to that is, is the whole idea of destroying institutions to make them stronger. I mean, that's a real heavy theme throughout the Mr. Robot series. And even at the beginning of season three, that's sort of what Elliot was saying that they were doing or trying to do. And he was questioning whether that was a good idea, given how things have turned out. And I just think in the United States, I mean, obviously in the past year or two, we've definitely seen a lot of that impetus as well, you know, destroying our institutions maybe to make them stronger, maybe not. There is that kind of sensibility and, and you're seeing that in a lot of places. Obviously, what's happening in, in Europe and, and in the UK, but also in, in places like Malta, which you know is, for example, passing sweeping legislation to become what they call blockchain island. So you're just seeing all these disruptive patterns of like institutions that we thought, or at least I thought were I mean, not necessarily here to stay, but we're, you know, more permanent being sort of challenged. And I mean, Mr. Robot was really good about touching on that. Yeah, there's this sense that the music has started for this game of musical chairs and everyone's trying to figure out how to get as much as they can before the music stops. In fact, I think it's pretty compelling that season three was really involved in talking about the rise and potential fall and maybe rise again of cryptocurrencies and the warring factions in terms of the world markets who would have the dominant currency. In Mr. Robot in season three, it was eCoin, you know, evil corp, crypto coin, once the financial markets were wiped out. And in this season three, it was versus Bitcoin. And Bitcoin has definitely fallen from favor since then. But but still, you know, when you hear stories about, for example, China incorporating blockchain and cryptocurrency as part of its five-year plan, its 13th five-year plan, which started in 2016, again, I mean, it's pretty prescient, I think, of Mr. Robot to touch on this stuff. I think it'll be interesting to see if any prosecutions are brought for cryptocurrency manipulation. I don't know if you saw the article uh, that came out a couple months ago that showed that there were like syndicates basically on what's that used WhatsApp or other secure messaging platforms to coordinate buy and sell activities to manipulate the market. And some of them had connections to hedge funds. It it is alleged. Uh, so the you know there was an indictment. Uh, there was some evidence 
uh, filed in court by Manafort's team against uh, by Mueller's team against Manafort, where they cite evidence that they extracted from his iCloud backup of WhatsApp, because evidently WhatsApp didn't encrypt its mess its uh, backups in iCloud uh, until a recent app update, uh, maybe like a month or a month and a half ago. So until then, any app WhatsApp user who enabled iCloud backup was in essence giving a backdoor to the secure messaging of the platform. And I'm wonder, I'm curious to see if the SEC brings any charges uh, and requests these documents from other people. Yeah, it, it would be interesting because it's it is clear if you spend any time in not in in the crypto crypto community that there really is a lot of this gaming going on and. It, it will be interesting to see if anything comes about that. I think that's potentially what's going on with Bitcoin as well right now. I mean, there's a chance it could be artificially suppressed in terms of it being so low so that people can buy a bunch who are sort of working together. And then when the price goes up, they can sell. I mean, I, I have no idea, but um, you never know. I, I think the the kind of sophistication that is happening with the crypto market is understated. If you think about the fact that concentration exists in the crypto market and it's suspected that, you know, a small group of people hold an outsized amount and then the connections to hedge funds and other sort of capital that aren't too scrupulous about details, you can imagine that there's a perfect storm for a lot of shenanigans. I just finished a small project where I had the opportunity to look at a blockchain-focused company that's working in the smart city space. And so it gave me the opportunity to do a lot of research about what's happening with Internet of Things and, and sensors and and the blockchain, and who knows where any of it will go. Vast amount of uh, money being put into those pools. So I know um, Alibaba Corporation, for example, they have a whole blockchain investment arm. I think it's Ant Financial. Uh, and I think they just moved their offices to Malta. Places like Dubai are heavily invested. So there is that aspect. And then on top of that, there are all these different token events that range from everything from like powering smart energy to um, I think there is a cat. Doesn't Snoop Dogg have a token? I think he has a cannabis themed token. Um, so, yeah, it's the wild, wild west or not even wild west. It's the wild, wild universe, <laughs> crypto universe. One thing I've been thinking about recently is the intersection between blockchain and uh, climate change. When you think about how a lot of like crypto, for instance, requires a lot of energy. Uh, because of the computational requirements. And not to say that all blockchain technology is that energy intensive, but I wonder about how this is all going to tie into an increasingly hot planet with increasingly scarce resources. That was one of my pet theories when Mr. Robot in season three, when they were really focused on um, the United Nations vote to allow China to annex the Congo, I was first going to the whole well, this is the amount of energy needed to mine cryptocurrency because like you're saying, I mean, the the amount of energy it takes to mine thing, like a, a single Bitcoin is, it's outrageous, isn't it? And um, you would think that there's 
some kind of market play there. Since we are speaking about the whole storyline in season three about the annexation of the Congo, it really raised my consciousness in the real world to current events. And it's, it's amazing to read all the stories about how China is heavily, heavily investing in the continent of Africa on multiple fronts. They're investing in one of the largest ports, and I forget how much. And in fact, the president of China just did a, a big tour of different places in Africa. I guess strategically, it's an incredibly smart play. I mean, that's going to transform world dynamics for the foreseeable future, what's going to happen there. I think it'll be interesting to see if China does a better job with Africa than the U.S. did with South America. For example, there's a fishing village called Bagamoyo, and it's set to become the largest port in Africa. The Chinese government and business interests are investing $10 billion dollars. And I guess that's a, a, a port in Tanzania. Kind of funny. It's like Mr. Robot that's sort of raising my consciousness. This is even a thing and it's happening and it's happening at a pace I don't think many of us can imagine. And meanwhile, the State Department has been gutted and morale uh, plummeting amidst uh, you know, Trump administration management. It's really upsetting. I mean, the State Department is just such an important institution and They've done so so many great things, and to just be sort of kneecapped like that, we're very proud of what we do in Silicon Valley, but at the same time, Silicon Valley is still a center of innovation, but it's not the center of innovation, and maybe it shouldn't have ever been the only center, or not that it, see, I'm talking in circles, but, but you get what I mean. I'm not saying it was the only place where innovation happened, but I guess I feel like Silicon Valley is losing pace, uh, for better or for worse. I think on a number of fronts, America is surrendering leadership or a position of dominance. It's, I think, pretty interesting if you go through the mental exercise of taking a step back and looking at where the U.S. is right now in terms of... Uh, you know, we've uh, alienated our allies. We've lost a lot of respect around the world. I think the figures around economic growth and its tie to, let's say, the stock market aren't necessarily the best indicator that people are doing well in this country. Like the stock market is a way to generate wealth for rich people, both in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, and I would argue that it's not the key metric when trying to assess how day-to-day -day people are doing. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it only affects a small number of people. And another thing I thought was remarkable was just to touch back on the whole idea of hacking the voter machines and then the capture the flag sort of references that we saw in Mr. Robot. There, there was a story that came out on Motherboard, that section of Vice, where they talked about... Um, this big voting machine company had uh, remote access to the machines. And I was like, oh, that's, that's bad, you know, but I guess I can understand if it's secure remote access. But um, this major voting machine company that supplies our, our voting machines, they had PC Anywhere installed. That's how they remote access these machines, like PC Anywhere, which was, which is a piece of, you know, kind of crappy software. <laughs> I think there was, it was revealed that there was a security vulnerability in PC Anywhere uh, a few years back. Uh, so, you know, I think that the news there was especially troubling because this was pre-fixed uh, PC Anywhere. I did a little bit of research on that. And in 2011, 
hackers obtained access to the source code for PC Anywhere and posted it around, I guess, on the dark web or wherever. It's just outrageous. But but that's what made me think of what I mentioned earlier about how there are some sloppy cybersecurity practices happening. I mean, it's just unacceptable. Who would think of using PC Anywhere? What did that do? Save three months or six months on development time? Like not building something custom or coming up with a good process? Well, engineers can be lazy, Margaret. I'm sure you've, uh, not all, but I think that's, you know, sometimes something that happens. True that. Another thing that I think that um, that I'd like to hear what you think as well that was touched on in season three of Mr. Robot is the whole idea of you really can't trust what you see in the news and the whole notion that even the media, they're an unreliable narrator. Obviously, there are some parallels to that today. I think it's really interesting to see the parallels between that and QAnon conspiracy mm-hmm. that's been gaining more and more attention. You know, it's something I kind of started tracking a year or so ago because I would see the hashtag popping up. Uh, and it was often popping up in accounts that I suspected of being linked to bots, botnets, mm-hmm. or bot activity. Mm-hmm. So I started kind of looking at that conspiracy theory and tracking it. And I think it's been in the news because in the Trump rally in Florida, uh, there was a, like a lot of Q imagery everywhere. And it's like, you know, spurred stories talking about this conspiracy in mainstream news publications because it's gotten to that level of relevance. But if you think about it, QAnon could also be a psychological psyops being run to provide cover for the Trump administration, right? Because the heart of the QAnon conspiracy is this idea that Trump is actually working hand in hand with Mueller to root out people that have sold out the American public. Yeah. I mean, what do you think the QAnon phenomenon is? I mean, do you think it's a psyop? Uh, It could be that, or it could be just some guy doing the biggest prank in you know, history, right? (laughs) Like, you know, like next year on April Fool's, some guy could like post something and be like, gotcha, and have all the, you know, documents in a secure archive somewhere to prove that he's the the real guy. But, you know, the scary thing is, if you think about it, is even if it's revealed to be that, there are some people who are going to hang on to this core belief and think that, you know, this is all a setup and can't be trusted. Like, this the, something kind of something sinister and a little bit twisted is being born that's not going to be snuffed out just with how Trump administration turns out. Like there are some people who are going to be hardcore and stay in this Pizzagate, QAnon, Trump as a patriot thread. And I don't know if they're ever going to be able to be reconciled back to mainstream reality. I, I think there's a lot to what you're saying. I mean, personally, I do think it's a PSYOP, some kind of psychological operation. I don't know if it's linked. You know, I don't want to, you know, if I do reference Russia, I don't want folks to think that I, you know, see them as this monolithic, you know, boogeyman or anything. But let's face it, um, you know, these these techniques are, are tried and true um, and our social networks uh, have been used for for computational propaganda and for, you know, I saw a job for um, 
a memeologist the other day and I was like, I want that job. I want to um, make memes all day long. <laughs> but I mean, I do think that there was um, some kind of radicalization and activation in people um, along the themes of the Q QAnon. I actually know uh, a couple people, I think, who who believe in it. And you'd be surprised who it reaches. And it's it's it does feel like it's um, the fervor is very cult like, and um, and it reminded me of Angela's devotion to White Rose and her her belief that everything was worth it because of some future reward. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they resolve that and what the answer is. Like, what exactly did he promise her? Like, it seemed at various points that it might be time travel or something else. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, I definitely, you know, when we were watching Mr. Robot this past season and we were talking about Angela's devotion to White Rose, I know we did mention that it was, there were some kind of cult feelings to it. I know I mentioned that at least. And I, again, once again, I only feel that way more about the story, but also this whole QAnon, QAnon phenomenon. I think it's I think it's pretty interesting. I think it's um, probably very similar to certain um, elements of, of Nazism. When you saw Nazism rise up in Germany, um, that, that same fervent. I know back, back then the National Socialists tried to resurrect a lot of um, pagan symbols and stuff like that and use them for that end as well. And I think it had similar, similar impact um, so it's, it's scary. Like, it's just, um, everything's so fringe. <laughs> um, okay. So we talked about the annexation of the Kong. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I think the interesting thing about what's going on is how you can see parallels with the third Reich in terms of a small hardened group that coalesces around some sort of initially fringe ideology and it's kind of mass and pseudoscience. Uh, kind of alternative facts of the day. And that small group seizes power and then uses the organs of power to establish uh, dominance over time. And I think it's really scary when you look at what's happening now through that lens. Yeah, I mean, isn't it? Isn't there that statistic that you really only need 40% of a population to support a coup <laughs> for and it I to happen? And I think one unexplored thing is the fact that China and Russia could be working together. I came across this tweet the other day and I, I shared it with you in the email that we were sharing back and forth on our notes for the show today. This tweet I saw was some conservative pundit saying, this is Putin's vision for the United States. And I, was, I couldn't find that tweet earlier, but I found where it was taken from. And basically, there's this former KGB agent from 2010 who predicted the balkanization of the United States. In this imagined scenario, the East Coast would sort of be sliced off for the EU and sort of the middle top part would be sliced off for Canada or the bottom part would be given to Mexico. And then the West Coast, starting from around Utah on, would be under the um, dominance of China. Alaska would go to Russia. Hawaii would go to either China or Japan. I was just saying to a friend, you know, with all the stuff going on with the wall and the borders, who's to say that this balkanization scenario is impossible? And 
And it would benefit both China and Russia to join forces, I guess, in a lot of ways. Well, I think that both Putin and the Chinese leader are students of history. I think they're very well aware of their place in history as well. And all big powers fall because of balkanization. You know, they fall through internal discord and a combination of external stressors. And so if China and Russia are seeking to increase their power, it has to come at the expense of the dominant world power, that would be the United States. And how can that happen? You know, it happens in a number of ways, but primarily it happens through internal discord. That's a tried and true way of reducing a country's power and creating an opportunity for you to fill that power vacuum. It's amazing. I mean, I never in my lifetime thought I would see this and just see the radicalization. Kara Swisher actually has a really good op-ed in the New York Times about how the social networks are sort of our weapons of mass destruction and it's where primary front of the warfare. And I definitely felt it from a family member who, you know, I grew up with like a sister who has somehow become pretty radicalized with all this discourse. I'm sure she probably knows all about QAnon. I don't even really recognize her. And there's no real grounding in, a, in an ideology, uh, not that there has to be, but it's it's just taking different, different strands and, and kind of packing it all together into some like, it's like a golem. <laughs> <laughs> or a tulpa, like to reference Twin Peaks, you know, this entity that is created out of preying on people's anger and inner hatred and causing turmoil. And my cousin's like, or I shouldn't say it's my cousin, but it is a cousin. She's pretty anti-immigrant. Like I've never heard her talk about that before. And it was interesting, even Mr. Robot touched on those themes when in that one episode with Elliot and that little boy, Mohammed, the Trenton's family and what they endured when Trenton was exposed to be a hacker and an infamous hacker. Uh, if you'll remember that episode later on in season three. I'd, so it's just interesting. Mr. Robot's just always in touch with these themes. I think we're going to see some sort of ep, uh, event go viral in season four. You know, like how there's been these outing of racists and people acting a certain way in public and having that recorded and then going viral, right? I think mm -hmm. we're going to see this uh, in season four uh, at some point. I think so, too. Um Permit Patty lives in my neighborhood. I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> you know, uh, there was a, a more recent episode, I guess, of some woman uh, in Southern California who was trying to call ice on a woman that was breastfeeding and asking for money. And some woman stepped in and started recording her. And <laughs> all the, the Twitter uh, commentary seemed to remark at how all these women look the same. Like Thank there's you. a certain there's a certain common type. And it's like, what's going on here? Like, why is that? They do all look the same. It's really upsetting. They all seem to be around a certain age. They kind of have a similar, maybe maybe it's something in the food. Maybe it's like a certain kind of, you know, food that I don't know what, but it's true. It's it's horrifying. It, it, it makes me so sad. It makes me wonder if people were always this ugly. And, and the answer is probably yes. They just feel more emboldened. Can that really be? <sighs> I, think, I, I am starting to feel increasingly bad for the American public in terms of 
how they're treated. If you think about it, it's like the average American is like inundated with media and images that are designed to mess with their minds, scramble how they feel, get them to spend, buy certain things. Like it's a sea of potential influence, right? All these things trying to get you to do what they want you to do. And then, you know, a lot of the food that we eat is processed food. So we're ingesting a lot of poison between the food and the drugs that we take and the drugs that we abuse. There's a lot of poison going into our bodies. And then we're in an environment that's increasingly polluted. So it's a pretty toxic, no pun intended, environment. Like, is there any wonder that people would act so crazy? Sorry to interrupt. No, you're not interrupting. I, I think it's, there's, a, there's a really a lot to that. You know, like um, you definitely see certain like incidents of certain diseases going up. I mean, this is, again, this is even referenced in Mr. Robot where Elliot and Angela, they came together because both, both of their parents got sick through some kind of work-related incident. And you have these, um, you have these sections of the country where, you know, as you all know, there are these cancer maps or you see a certain kinds of cancers on the rise. And you really do have to wonder like, you know, where's that coming from? Or if you, see what's in our water now add to that horrible disaster scenario isn't this a fun podcast everybody i know you would really enjoy this if we think about the fragile climate and then we think about the horrendous patronage that the epa has been enduring since you know, for the past two years and all the rolling back regulations and then you think about the fragility of our infrastructure like our water supply and um how that needs to sort of be updated and also protected. I have noticed that all these people calling the cops, they kind of look like cookie cutter versions of each other. You, well, you Have you ever seen the movie WALL-E, the Pixar movie? A, a long time ago I did, yes. Where he goes to that spaceship and everyone looks the same way. They're all like overweight and they're all kind of like emotionally immature. Um, and maybe there's something to be said about how people can develop poor impulse control and how that manifests in a lot of different ways. As you know, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. This professor, Naomi Wolf, who's constantly posting about weather modification and spraying the clouds, and, and she's somebody I've been following for a while, Dr. Naomi Wolf, and she started out as like a like a cultural theory academic from what I remember. And so I just saw her on Twitter a few years ago, and now she posts almost exclusively about the manipulation of clouds. And she has this whole theory about um, corporations taking control of the water supply and other stuff too. Put spraying aluminum in the air. I mean, I don't know. It sounds out there, but... Oh, that's interesting that you mentioned that because I've been tracking stories about weather modification manipulation for... Uh, I don't know, a while, um, because I found it really interesting that people weren't talking more about it. Because you would see these articles, especially in China and in Russia, where they would talk about how they did certain things to prevent rain or to try to increase the likelihood of good weather on certain important days. And it got me thinking, like, wow, what if there was this activity happening on a large scale? Like, you could imagine someone somewhere doing some modeling and saying, hey, if we do this, we could impact weather for our neighbor. 
and that would have the following like geopolitical ramifications like hmm that's interesting right and i'm sure i'm not the only one to think of this like i'm sure there's people up in other places that are also thinking about this yeah i wish i had researched it more for this podcast but yes naomi wolf has gotten me on to because i was like oh that sounds kind of crackpot you know you hear about the um chemtrails and she posts on twitter some um links to some interesting articles related to um you know some of the stuff that you're referencing as well as controlling the water supply and stuff like that and and anyway so i guess it's good to keep track of that as well Um, let's see. Another thing, you know, we talked a little bit about how in Mr. Robot, even the media is the unreliable narrator. They have a character there, Frank Cody, who's very much like the Alex Joneses of the world. As Rick Wilson says, everything Trump touches dies eventually. Alex Jones, I've been aware of him for like quite a long time. And I did notice, um, you know, not that I was a fan, but I've definitely followed him for a long time and I noticed there was a point when he was starting to hang out with like the Roger Stones of the world and um and the Martin Sheens or the Charlie Sheens of the world where he he kicked something into high gear and you have to wonder um in terms of like this influence these influence campaigns and this disinfo campaigns and you know if we also look at the transformation of of Julian Assange not that he was always necessarily ever really a good guy um but WikiLeaks at some point decidedly became much more polemic and 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 pro Kremlin, right? And um and I even have to say Snowden for that matter, uh, whom I've I've seen speak. You know, I went to um see him speak via a satellite link, and you know I'm I've come to even start to wonder about his involvement in a lot of this disinfo campaign, whether willingly or not. At this point, I mean, he is after all in in Russia. <laughs> Uh, all pretty interesting stuff. I feel like Putin, for all of he la- all that he lacks in terms of his own lack of impulse control, he is one of the richest men in the world, and he does know how to play the long game, huh? Yeah, I mean, I don't think necessarily it's an accident that the institutions that would be able to defend the United States from cybersecurity have undergone certain pretty significant, uh, you know, hits over the past few years with Snowden and the release of all the leaked documents and other things that reveal methods and method and means which are highly sensitive in the intelligence community. This all affects our ability to protect ourselves uh, going forward. Yeah. Do you think that Assange will be released to the United States eventually? Uh, I think, you know what? I, I don't think so. Um, I would be surprised if he if he was actually. <clears throat> Do you want to hear my one of my um, crackpot theories? I think Pamela Anderson is like carrying secrets back and forth every time she visits. I think there's stuff being passed around um, that is you know meant for different folks, you know, to get messages in and out of that embassy. I guess the embassy is ending their protection of him soon, Assange. Yeah, but all this stuff happens very slowly, and I think it's part of an attempt to influence various parties through having leverage. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I would be, I would take it a lot more seriously if, for instance, like he was, they made moves within like an hour to get him out. Because at the end of the day, they can kick him out, shut the door, and then that's that. Like he's done. Um, but the fact that they kind of pre-announced this and it's talked about ahead of time 
it's designed to convey information to certain parties. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe Irving and Mr. Robot is the, is the only one who has the most realistic grip. Uh, he's, he's pretty fatalist at the end of the day. Uh, happy fatalist, I guess. Happy psychopathic fatalist. He says things like, no matter how hard you try, this is the end result, meaning the 1% are always going to party it up. And, um, you know, there is no big picture. The big picture is you don't matter. Well, we'll see. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, we'll see if that's true. Do you have any predictions? I know we need to wrap this up pretty soon. But do you have any predictions for what might be coming for season four? Yeah, I think crypto will increasingly play a, a big role in things. I, uh, I think uh, we're going to find out more about what, why Angela tried to uh you know support e-corp um and what sort of promises were made what do you think i definitely think crypto will be a big thing um you know i have to tell you though when i was reviewing these notes and then i, I see the unfolding of current events and i'm thinking oh my gosh like mr robot wasn't six months ahead of its time it was three months ahead of its time and stuff like that i have to wonder how far they can take it how far they can stretch this to be as edgy and on the cutting edge of, of what's possible because they really do, the, the world events really do seem to be keeping pace with this most epic tale of dystopian fiction. But I do think the crypto will continue to be a big deal. I think we'll see the further dismantling of society and different institutions. I mean, after all, stage two was successful. I mean, it was a mass terrorist event. I mean, can you imagine that happening in real life? Something like that happened in our world, like all at once, uh, how that would not only impact the lives that are lost and the families and all that, but, but just the speaking of zeitgeist, how that would impact the overall zeitgeist of, of the world and people's sense of security. So I think we'll see more of that unraveling. And, and maybe Dominique might be the hero in disguise. Maybe she'll revolt against her forced in servitude of the, of the dark army. Oh, that's a good prediction. Uh, let's yeah. see if that happens. Well, thanks, Henry. It's been so much fun talking about this with you. And if folks have any feedback they want to give us on the show, the hello friend podcast at gmail.com is our overly long email address. We would love to hear from you. Yeah. Please send messages. Thanks. And, and hopefully we'll do another episode before season four premieres. And thanks, Henry. This has been so much fun. Thanks, Margaret. Bye. All right. Have a good one. Sometimes I dream of saving the world. Saving everyone from the invisible hand. One that brands us with an employee badge. One that forces us to work for them. The one that controls us every day without us knowing it. But I can't stop it. <laughs>